0: Yeah, if you're not there yet, please open your Bibles to First Corinthians 15. If you're not there yet, that would be page 961 in your church Bibles. Uh, yeah, before we start, I'll ask, I'll ask you to stand. And what we're going to do is uh, something very quick. Uh, it's a traditional Christmas greeting, I believe. Thousands, if not millions of churches have... Uh, you know, taking part in today. So please take a stand. What I'm going to do is um, I will say three times, uh, Christ is risen. And you reply, he is risen indeed on every occasion. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. may see it. So, yeah, page 961, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, according to the 2021 stats, um, 80 million Easter eggs are sold in the UK each year. 20 million Easter eggs, uh, which brings the average spend to £299 million. Uh, Perhaps some of you will have received some... uh, cream filled chocolate eggs or bernies. Uh, uh, I wonder when consuming them, whether you thought of the process, but some of you are good uh, bakers, are con- <laughs> confectionists here. So, um, but we know that, uh, you know, chocolate of course doesn't occur naturally in the shape of eggs, does it? Or is the bunnies? We know that it's put together in liquid form and the candy is then poured into a mould and allowed to harden. And through this process, it takes, it takes on the shape and the size of the mould. So one quick glance and you can tell, uh, you can tell which mould was used for the chocolate. So just as candy mould shapes chocolate, Ideas, theologies, and value systems do shape our lives. They mould the way we think, how we feel, where we spend our time and energy. You'll know from your Bibles that uh, the church in Corinth is not particularly one to envy, is it? In fact, it can be summed up you know, um, in the following headings, problem number one, problem number two, problem number three, problem number four, and so on. But one after another, one problem after another, Paul addresses the dilemmas and the questions that the congregation faced. What were they? Party politics, Uh, members filing lawsuits against one another, Gross sexual immorality, uh, questions regarding marriage, um, idolatry, disorderly worship, a denial of the resurrection of the dead. And, um, you know, from from this snapshot, we can see that, uh, I mean, it's obvious the Corinthians were shaped, at least when this letter was addressed to them, by something else, something other than the truth of Christ even though they were equipped with Scripture and the Holy Spirit. So this evening we'll be looking at um, chapter 15, of course, where Paul explains the facts about the resurrection, um, the centrality of the resurrection, the consequences of the resurrection, both future and, and present And uh, yeah, we'll leave it there up to uh, verse 34. Of course, our emphasis, as our brothers mentioned already, will be on uh, from verse 29 to 34. And that is the consequences of the resurrection in the present. The consequences of the resurrection in the present. In other words, when you look back at Christ's victory over death, hell and the grave, and then look to the future certainty that you too will one day be raised. That should change everything, everything about the way you live in the present. So the big question before us is, are you living a resurrection shaped life? When someone observes your lifestyle, when they listen to your conversations or see the way you react to different circumstances? What do they see? What mould would they recognise as having shaped you? Is it the mould of pride, of materialism and pleasure, of anger, of lust, of bitterness, laziness? What should shape your life? To help help us answer this, Paul points, uh, he paints a picture of a resurrection-shaped life in these three areas. In our worship, in the risks of the decisions we take, we make, and our pursuit for godliness, for holiness. Three pointers to help us just to follow along. Number one, resurrection-shaped worship, that's in verse 29. uh, Resurrection-shaped risks, from 30 to 32. And resurrection-shaped holiness, 33 to 34. That's resurrection-shaped worship, resurrection-shaped risks, and resurrection-shaped holiness. So to our first point, uh, resurrection-shaped worship. Before we, get, we delve into it Remember Keep this at the back of your mind That the issue at hand is not so much The denial of The resurrection of the dead Simply because it was common In Greek culture at the time To believe in the immortality Of the soul But rather the issue Is about the bodily Resurrection of the dead This false teaching at crept into the church and some of the Corinthians were saying that the bodies of dead people, they believed that the bodies of dead people do not, cannot and will not rise again. So that's a separate issue altogether. But we know that Christ rose bodily. He was seen, we've seen in the first verses of this chapter that there were eyewitness accounts of him, he was seen, he was touched, he appeared, he prepared a breakfast meal for his followers, and so on. So he did rise bodily, we know that. So uh, see, look at verse 29 and mark that word otherwise, because it's a, a continuation of the argument, of everything else that's gone on, you know, before in the preceding Verses, And uh, the argument continues from what's, uh, what Paul has been explaining about the centrality of the resurrection. That if Christ did not rise, then our faith is in vain. And so on. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Verse 29 strange verse isn't it strange practice being baptized on behalf of someone dead and there's about 30 or 40 interpretations to this verse and we won't we won't won't get into it really um yeah but to avoid you know going down rabbit hole uh we can quickly draw to a conclusion that this strange practice here went or goes against the grain of the gospel itself, doesn't it? In fact, Paul is not condoning it here, but rather he's using it for the sake of argument. What he's saying is the mere fact that you are practicing baptism, you guys in Corinth are practicing this baptism, albeit the wrong kind of baptism, yet denying the resurrection of the dead, is proof that your actions are not consistent with what you believe because in order for you to be a baptism party you must be a resurrection party because baptism implies your identification with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death in his burial And in his resurrection. So he he highlights the hypocrisy and the inconsistency and the deceit going on here. To doubt or deny the bodily resurrection betrays logical inconsistency. As Christians, our lives ought to bear bright and vibrant testimony to Christ, our risen Lord. And we can do that, of course, in a variety of ways, but we begin with baptism, do we not? We begin with baptism, and we know that while we are not saved by water baptism, we will do well to treat this symbol, this ordinance, as important, because as a commitment, as an affirmation, as an expression, a declaration of our faith publicly in the presence of God and other believers, even to the world. It reminds us of our own union with Christ and our identity as uh, children of God who have died, been buried and raised with Christ. And it challenges us to walk in the newness of life. But the resurrection should not only shape our lives with regard to the meaning and significance of baptism, it should also frame our attitude towards the Lord's day as well. You see, the New Testament did not change the fourth commandment in the Old Testament. It simply shifted its observance from the seventh day to the fast and recognition of what? Of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So basically every Sunday is the Lord's Day. And every Sunday, because it's the Lord's Day, it's Resurrection Sunday. When we observe the Lord's Day, we do testify to the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And his Lordship over time. And therefore, if he is Lord over time, which he is. Then he claims sovereignty over our time and sets apart one entire day for himself. So in turn, we should, as we are commanded, set aside one separate day for him. We should respond in obedience to him. Set aside Sunday as a day of worship and celebration of His resurrection. So basically Sunday is not my day or your day. It's not spot's day or chill out day. It's the Lord's day. What does that imply? It does imply a lot of things. That's where I would pause for you to think. And how that fits into your thinking, your, um, your daily life. If the Lord's Day is a celebration, then our worship must not be lax. We mustn't have a, we shouldn't have a lax attitude towards the Lord's Day. It must not be careless or lacking in enthusiasm, but it must be thoughtful. It should be thoughtful and grounded in His Word. And joyful as well, even in the midst of uh, trials and tribulations. So just take a moment and consider your attitude towards the Lord's Day. Any sense of anticipation? An old lady once shared how she prepares for Sunday worship during the week and on a Saturday. (laughs) But I'll, I'll briefly share with you her what she goes through on a Saturday. Basically, she, she, she thinks of what to wear and makes a selection. What to wear on the Lord's Day. Uh, so she's not in a rush come Sunday morning. Um, she prays for the service to go well. She seeks to identify the prayer requests from the previous week. Or the church notices. And she prays through those. She prays for the pastor, for God to encourage and strengthen them as they deliver God's word and as they go about um, the pastoral role. She prays for for the congregation, people she may know, people she may not know, struggling with various issues and also uh, praying to the Lord that uh, everyone may be encouraged and you know, make the effort to turn up on a Sunday and be blessed, be blessed by the, the fellowship that they may um, experience and the word that they may hear. So, um, you, can, you, you can tell she's worshipping in her preparation, isn't she? And that's, um, there's a sense of reverence and expectation in in. in in how she approaches God and how she anticipates meeting with God's people as opposed to switching the worship, you know, flicking the worship, worship uh, switch on when the doors open at, uh, uh, well, at 10 a.m. or 5 p.m. on a Sunday. So that's quite an attitude for us to emulate in our worship in our lives, isn't it? But we consider the activities that go on here, you know, in our local church and, uh, you know, what needs to be done. Just having that attitude of a willingness to, to serve, to help, to worship God in that way with all the, uh, the things that need to get done rather than maybe expecting someone else is going to do it, assuming or leaving it for your pastor to do it, or the elders to do it, knowing they, have, they do have quite a lot already um, in, in terms of laboring in, in the word of God. But there we go, some food for thought, resurrection-shaped worship. We know, of course, it's not a, a switch you just flick. on. These are attitudes internally generated by the Holy Spirit as a result of walking with God in his word and cultivating Christ and the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. So quick look at verse 30 to 32. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, my pride by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This brings us to our next point, resurrection-shaped risks. I'm sure many, if not all of us, have had to take risks at certain points in our lives. In fact, we do take risks every day. Uh, We just don't seem to realize it, do we? A risk, of course, by definition, is uh, a course of action. A course of action whose outcome may not have the desired effect. But here Paul portrays or he paints a picture of a resurrected, shaped, resurrection-shaped life as evidenced by the risks one takes. He's mentioned that he and his fellow co-workers were in constant danger Of the Romans because they followed Jesus and proclaimed him as king and lord rather than Caesar. You could get killed for not confessing Caesar as lord in the day. That's what he means. He dies daily. He faces death. The danger of death daily. They were in danger also of the Jews as well because they were Uh, They were deemed as heretics attempting to overthrow the ancient uh, Jewish faith. If he faced the possibility of death every day, then every day he had to die to self and be willing to face the prospect of his end, of his death for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's kingdom. And so it says, if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. His argument basically is I'm doing all this service to the Lord. I face all these risks including the ultimate which is my own life, death. Why would I do it? If there's no such thing as a resurrection then it's all in vain. It's all empty. And he employs a quote he borrows from Isaiah twenty two thirteen. 13. And getting the context of this would help us understand why, why Paul chose to uh, use these words in this situation. In Isaiah, the prophet foretold the coming destruction of Jerusalem. The Israelites were diligent. They were careful to protect, to fortify the city against enemy attack. But they were unmindful of God. God called them to repentance, but they chose to party instead. They pursued pleasure. They were all for self-indulgence. And their mantra was, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We've probably been there before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, no meaning in life, just enjoy it while it lasts. Paul sees this attitude of indifference to spiritual reality and, you know, the pursuit of the immediate as the logical position of everyone or anyone who denied the resurrection. Why face dangers for the gospel if you die? And that's it. If that's all there is to life, there's no resurrection. I mean, consider the senseless war going on in Ukraine. The destruction of countless lives and property. You've seen the multitudes of those who have volunteered to stay behind and fight and contribute towards the war effort. I can't help but think of... You know, Ukraine has uh, produced great sportsmen over the last uh, few decades, especially in boxing. I think there's about uh, four or five uh, former and current boxing world champions. And they were not at home when the war started. They easily, comfortably would have stayed where they were in the United States and elsewhere and avoided the war, but they left their comfort, came on, enlisted with the army, were willing to fight. They were willing to fight because to them, love for country, love for country was important. It did override everything else. Dying while fighting for their country was well worth, or is well worth the risk. Some have died, others will. But the outcome they hope for, the victory they hope for, is well worth dying for. But the Christian has a much, much stronger cause to live and die for, you and I. A heavenly country, a heavenly country where the outcome, the return on every risk we take in this life is rich, it's eternal, and it's guaranteed. As Christ rose, so shall we rise, bodily. We've lost our dear loved ones, quite a number of them in uh, last few months and years. But especially those that have died in the Lord. That's why we're reminded not to mourn. Like those who have no hope. We do have a hope. That we shall rise. We shall be raised even as Christ rose. And we will have a transformed body. It will be identical to this earthly one. It's not like this is going to be done away with, finished, and then a new one is coming. No, this will be transformed. This will be transformed into a heavenly body where we're able to be in the Lord's presence eternally. So you may not have to face lions, lions, in a Roman arena, like Paul and his co-workers, or be imprisoned for street preaching. But you'll have to face the risk of being rejected, of uh, being called funny names, being made fun of, being overlooked for promotions at work, for example, or even being expelled from family gatherings. Just because you believe in Christ. Just because you choose to advance the kingdom of God. Those, those are, are risks. Those are the risks we must be you know, prepared to take joyfully. And you, you best know that if you're going to live for and serve the Lord faithfully. You will encounter these things. So the question is, will you remain risk-free? Will you be a risk-free spectator on the sidelines? Or by the grace of God, will you get in the field and run and fight for the sake of the gospel? The temptation is to get so caught up in the, in the immediate, isn't it? And then we lose sight for the ultimate. But when we look to the future, we don't know, Just John says, what we'll be like, but we know that we'll be like him. We can't begin to imagine the bliss, the glory. But we know that. That is our destiny, don't we? So another area which Paul highlights is a believer's quest for godly living. Which brings us to the third and final point, resurrection-shaped holiness. Much of what Paul has said in uh, verses 29 to 32 is in the form of, you know, an argument. But in these last two verses, he switches from argument mode to command mode. There's a rebuke here, there's a command, there's an imperative. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 34, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Do not be tricked into thinking that a denial of the bodily resurrection is an acceptable position to maintain, he tells the Corinthians. To make his point, he borrows uh, the quote, bad company ruins good morals. In other words, the people with whom you associate have a, um, a greater influence on your life than you often realize. Parents will know this, as it's uh, it's one of the reasons, if not the major reason, why you carefully choose to uh, you carefully choose or eliminate friends for your children. I mean, spend time with dishonest, greedy, debauched people, and before you know it, their influence will start to rubble from you. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, the same principle applies to ideas, doesn't it? The thoughts and concepts that bombard us each day can, if we're not very careful, have a massive detrimental effect on our belief system and consequently our growth in godliness. So that calls for us to be very careful what company we keep. Company in the form of people. Company in the form of the gadgets, the gadgets we own. Our mobile phones, our tablets, our computers, our televisions. Next is a command to wake up, verse 34. For as long as the, the Corinthians continue to tolerate the no resurrection party, and fail to recognise the deadly implications of this no resurrection doctrine. They remain in a stupor, in a state of senselessness, and waking up is the right thing to do. Here Paul urges them to repent of any and every sin, but the specific target in this context is the sin of tolerating unbelief in other words theological compromise on the core issues of Christianity specific to resurrection today is a sin against God it dishonors the Lord Jesus and brings his glorious name into disrepute so think of how Many individuals and how many churches started off as orthodox, but have now gone woke. For example, the boat, I mean, they've they brought boat into the spirit of the age, haven't they? They've allowed the world to shape them into its mold. I stand for the truth, my brother, my sister, Will. It will cost you, and it may cost you dearly. But that's a risk worth taking, for God is more interested in your holiness and the purity of the church than in so called open mindedness and approval from the world. So we conclude with these words in verse 34. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What a statement. I say this to your shame. Just because you associate yourself with a church doesn't mean that you know the Lord. It doesn't mean that you are saved. You see some of the people in, um, in the church at Corinth. Did not know Christ. The church ought to have been embarrassed. Because some of these very people were in. uh, They were elevated to positions of leadership. This is a reminder. Why you have a membership process here. You have that process to, among other things, provide safeguards for maintaining the purity of the church. Take those safeguards away and the church will go kaboom! It will just explode with heresy and, and tolerance for sin. And what have you? So as we close... Would would Paul say similar things to our shame as well? Think about it corporately and individually. What does your life look like? What is shaping you into the person you are becoming? Is it a life of worship, of genuine worship? Are you willing to take risks for the gospel? Are you willing to serve? Or are you happy to sit back as a spectator? Is the pursuit of godliness, of holiness, a top priority? If not, why not? What needs to change for you to have a Resurrection shaped life. God help us think this through. Let us pray.